The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning. Welcome to Mentoring with Larry Sternberg, a show devoted to learning more about mentoring relationships. My guest today is Lieutenant General Roger Lemke. He is a retired United States Air Force officer who served as the Nebraska Adjutant General, during which time he was responsible for all state military services and directed the Nebraska Emergency Management Agency. He currently serves as Director of Military and Veterans Affairs for Senator Deb Fisher. Throughout his time in the military, Lieutenant General Lemke has received many acknowledgments and awards, and he is a gifted leader and role model for his community, his country, and his soldiers. Having mentored thousands of soldiers during his career, he has a unique perspective on mentoring. And let me start, General Lemke, by thanking you for your lifelong service to our country. It's an honor to have you on the show. Welcome. You bet. Well, thank you, Larry. And, and actually, and if you don't mind, I'm going to kind of transfer that honor to uh, uh, all those that served with me and, and under me, because they did all the legwork. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for that. Let's start with the following question. Is there a difference between mentoring coaching, supervising, and other similar relationships? Yeah, I think there very definitely is, uh, Larry. And uh, th- that was one thing that I really tried to uh, push and, and, uh, and relate back to uh, those uh, leaders and supervisors that, that work, work for me. You know, I see, for example, coaching as a situation where you're imparting information on someone, whether they are, how receptive they are is, is kind of up to them. You've got a definite objective of this is the outcome of, of really what I, what I want to have you learn. Uh, training, of course, is, is a skill set that you're, you're trying to impose or, uh, and somebody's trying to, to learn. To me, mentoring is, good mentoring is a much more informal uh, uh, situation that requires good active input by, by both parties. And I even say in, in my own case, as I look back, uh, the times that I was mentored throughout my career, I'm not so sure I always realized it. I think it was much later that I, I realized, hey, they were, they were trying to help me. Thank you very much. Who was the first person you remember who you would put the label of mentor? Well, you know, it's uh, I go I go all the way back to to the seventh grade. Uh, I went to a country school in southeast Nebraska, uh, and there were times when I was the only student in my grade. And in those days, back in generally in the fifties, uh, your teachers were always uh, female. Well, when I went into the seventh grade, actually that year, our country school had a male teacher. 
His name was Jack Stenton-Benz, and he, uh, he taught all eight grades, if you will, uh, in our country school. And, uh, you know, there were probably only a number of kids, probably only about 12 to 20 of us at most in the, uh, in the school. And, you know, I was, as a young man on the farm uh, growing up, uh, it was kind of a situation where I was, I guess you would say, smart enough to get through the classes and not have to worry a whole lot about studying or doing much. So school was school. And I'll never forget, as I look back, that he worked with me with, uh, to develop the idea of, of not just doing the work, uh, studying for the sake of getting it done, but studying and making it interesting and studying with the idea of making something of it and, and, and helping you grow and improve and, and expand. And it, it wasn't something that he, he just sat down and said, Lemke, one day you, gotta, you, know, you could do better, you, could, uh, you need to work harder. It was a matter of over time he would assign me or work with me or talk with me on subjects that maybe weren't part of the curriculum. And as I look back, that had a tremendous influence on my, uh, on the way that I, I look at uh, intellectualism and how I look at uh, growing the mind and being curious about things and so forth and so on. So that, to me, was my first recollection of myself of, of being in a mentoring uh, uh, relationship. Can you remember anything specific that you carry with you and pass on as a result of that relationship? Well, the one thing I remember one day we were talking and, oh, we had these papers uh, that we would do. We'd have to, uh, you know, we'd fill out a, it was kind of like a test, I guess, and you, it is a, maybe a one-page paper and you'd, you'd fill it out. And, and I did okay on it. You know, I missed a couple here and there and, and so forth. And I turned it in and, and uh, he came to me specifically and he says, you know, I think you could have done better on this. And I said, well... Maybe, but but why? What's kind of what's the point, if you will? And uh-huh. and his coming back was 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 to say, well, you know, it's it's about you doing the best you can, not just meeting the the, the minimum and getting by, but doing the best you can, you know. And I guess that thought specifically had never entered my mind before, and I've never forgotten that that conversation. Uh, as I as as I've lived through life, I'm curious. Was this a one room schoolhouse? Yes, one room schoolhouse, and not only that, but we had a. Uh, it was the bathrooms were outdoors, <laughs> and and the uh, it was now. Uh, we actually had we were modern in the sense that we actually had a an oil burns burning stove. There are other schools in the county that had still had wood stoves. Wow, I wonder if there are any of those left in Nebraska or anywhere else. Uh, not so much in Nebraska. Everything's pretty well consolidated. Uh, in fact, um, there's been an effort through Peru State College to kind of help remember and restore uh, some of the one-room schoolhouses out there because they are a fading, a fading memory. One, one little thing about that, uh, of course, we just had the one stove that's kind of sat on, along one wall, so come wintertime, we pretty much all had to kind of put our desks around that stove. Because if you walked, <laughs> oh, 20 or 10, 15 feet away, it got cold pretty quick. And did, did any of you actually notice this, or was this just business as usual? That's the way it was. No, that's the way it was. I mean, you know, I went home, and we had a wood stove at home. So 
it, there was no different, and we had a, we had an outhouse at home, so it was no different, uh, school or home. Uh, so yeah, we're all in, you know out in the out in the country farming, uh, that kind of a lifestyle. So no, there was nothing unusual about it. Nobody complained about it or anything like that. That's just the way it was. I hear that. So as your journey continued, who's the next person you might identify as a mentor? Well, you know, there's a, uh, there's a, a, uh, I I went through high school, uh, and I was fortunate enough to get an appointment to the Air Force Academy. Uh, My... My, my background, my dad was World War II and stayed in the Air Force Reserve. Mom, my mom is English and actually served in the Royal Air Force, so I actually had exposure to uh, learning about the military when I was growing up. So I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy, and I was, again, fortunate enough to get an appointment. So, and of course, when you go to one of the military academies, as most people know, during the summer and during that first year, that what they call the duly year for Air Force uh, cadets, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, life is pretty tough. You know, you've got to run, you got to walk around, run around at attention all the time. You had to, when you ate uh, in the dining hall, you ate at a brace. In other words, you were at attention when you were eating. Uh, you know, you were free in your room so you could study and stuff. But then there were a lot of things that you did. Well, uh, and of course, so there's a lot of yelling, a lot of <laughs> direction and stuff that you have comes from being yelled at. <laughs> and so, but the, I think it was the second semester of my, of my freshman year, the Dooley year, uh, we were in elements, maybe, and that element would, in that element of, of, uh, of cadets, there would be maybe six of us that were freshmen that were Dooleys. And so the element leader, a first classman, would uh, train us on various stuff. And so uh, the second semester, I had this, uh, my element leader was John, uh, a gentleman named John D. Maybe. And John was a pretty good cadet. He had been a squadron commander, one of the leaders prior to that. And then this semester, he was doing the element leader role. And so one day, afternoon late, he had all of his duelies out in front of, our, in front of his room, and we were, we were practicing our rifle drills. Uh, you know, where you have the rifle in one position, and then you go to move it to your shoulder, and then you go move it to another position. Because uh, at some point in the year, you kind of go through some competitions and uh, out there with, uh, with rifle drills. Well, again, most of the time, if you were doing these rifle drills and you did something not well, you got yelled at. That was the typical leadership approach, if you will, to how that was done. But he didn't do that. What he did was um, we're practicing away, and then he, he kind of quieted down. He looks at us all, and he says, so I'm going to give you this tip, and I don't want you to tell anybody. And so what he showed us was a way that when we moved the rifle and then grabbed it to snap our hands so that it made a very sharp sound, and it really you know, sounded nice. Uh, it's, it's what you would see when you uh, watch the highly trained uh, uh, honor guards out there. And so we tried it, and sure enough, boy, it sounded great. Well, you know, when he did that, he didn't yell at us. He gave us just kind of this tip. And I, I found out later that it's not that it was a special tip. Everybody does it. <laughs> but to us, we felt like we were special. And suddenly had we had this knowledge. feeling that, you know, we're better than everybody else. He's given us this little secret and uh, showed us how to do it. And now, uh, suddenly, we had this feeling that, you know, we could out-drill anybody in the wing. 
And so I always remember, you know, it was so easy to get after somebody and be negative and yell at them and so forth. But he got so much more out of us by being positive and, and doing something personal. And right. I guess I've never, ever forgotten that moment and those, that time period when we felt so special just because of that one little thing that he did. One of the things I hear you saying is that he instilled a high degree of confidence mm-hmm. in that you were special in a way that you had some technique that other people didn't have, and that gave right. you a lot of confidence going forward. Exactly, exactly. I'm curious about the derivation of the term dually. Would you help our listeners and me understand where that came from? Well, it's uh, all of your, uh, the different uh, academies have their di- different terms. The dually goes back, I think, to a, a, a bird that is, uh, and uh, don't quote me on this, and I hope I don't have any of my fellow graduates listening. They might know it better, the story better than I do, but it's a, it's a, it's a bird that, um, that doesn't fly very well, uh, is probably noted for not having a high level of intelligence among birds, uh, and so forth. So it's, it's you know, something that you attribute to somebody new that's coming in that doesn't know anything, that needs to be trained and follow, and, and, and the lowest of the low, if you will. That's kind of where the term is derived. Very interesting. Very interesting. So, again, because when you go to the academy, you go there with the idea, and the, 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 the leadership development technique was that they start you at the bottom. And, uh, you know, and you learn as you go and as you, and as you advance through the four years there, you, uh, gradually take on more personal and leadership responsibilities, um, to the point where then you're in charge of, you know, cadets under you when you're, uh, when you get to be a second, a junior and a, and a, and a senior. So the dually is, is a bird, derivative from a bird that was the lowest of the low. <laughs> okay. As your journey continued, were there any other people in the academy that, as you look back on it, you might label the relationship as a mentoring relationship? Um, I wouldn't say so much mentoring in in the direct sense, but I, I will say this. The other, when you're around situations where you can see leadership happening, you gain impressions. And my major... The, the, the major thing for me from the academy experience was not only seeing some really good leadership uh, applied, but also seeing uh, at times I thought was, was really bad leadership. Uh, there were times when, unfortunately, upperclassmen would decide that this younger cadet didn't belong there, and then they would do everything they could do to get them to fail, if you will. And I just I could never, after seeing that, ever sign up to a, a, a technique that would kind of push somebody towards, towards failure. And to me, that, that was always a little bit of a deficiency of the overall leadership development system that, that they had. So it wasn't so much, in, the case, in this case, individuals that I, worked, uh, I entered into a relationship from a mentoring perspective, but it was a perspective of looking at and observing different letter, leadership techniques and methods that were going on around me. As you observed that particular technique that you described, how did you deal with a situation where you found a cadet who you thought wasn't going to make it? I tried to work with them. 
you know, I, I guess, the, and from that experience, my philosophy is that you need to give them every possible chance. I mean, if they aren't, if they aren't cut out to be an Air Force officer, so be it. But you need, you need to give them opportunity, every opportunity to show that they can be successful. And this is where, and maybe you don't call it mentoring at this point, but this is where the counseling, the, the teaching, and so forth uh, come into play to try to help, help them uh, along. Uh, later on, after I, I graduated and went to pilot training, I came back and I was an instructor pilot there. We we uh, would teach the uh, the cadets to to fly with um, uh, with uh, propeller uh, aircraft uh, there. And they, when they left the academy, they would all uh, have uh, soloed at least and and gotten a certain number of flying hours. And so I I got to the point where I was kind of specializing in the um, in the kids that were having trouble uh, picking up the flying skill. And again, you want you want to dig into them, take a look at them, and see what you can do to help kind of enlighten them on areas where they can improve. But never work to to cut them down or or get after them to the point where they're degraded, personally degraded, or or, or anything like that. Do you think it's kind to leave somebody? striving for something where you believe in your heart of hearts this is just not the right role for them this is they they their aptitude isn't isn't in alignment with this kind of a a profession have you ever gotten to that point with somebody yes yes i have and and uh yes um you need to be realistic and you're not you're not really being helpful or kind or honest if if you're not looking at an individual that's under you and assessing their talents and trying to help them be successful and part of that is them aligning their skills with the way that can best help the organization and in fact uh, as i mentioned when we uh, when when kimberly talked you know she talked about skipping to work being happy to go to work well if you're not lined up with the skill set if your skill set really doesn't match very well what you're doing, it's hard to imagine skipping to work. Uh, and so, yes, I many times have looked at individuals and and worked with them, sometimes mentoring them, but other times directing them in other air, into different uh, paths that would better align with their skill sets. For the sake of our listeners, I want to mention that Kimberly Raff is one of the founders and the chairman of Talent Plus, Inc. here in Lincoln, Nebraska. I work for Talent Plus, and Kimberly recently spoke at a Rotary Club meeting where General Lemke was one of the attendees. So that was his reference to Kimberly there. We are about to... Uh, go to commercial here and when we come back general i would like you to discuss your point of view about institutionalizing mentoring programs then the challenges that are presented when organizations try to formalize and institutionalize a mentoring program so Let's take a few minutes break, ladies and gentlemen, and when we come back, we'll be with General Lemke and talk about the implementation and institutionalizing of mentoring programs. 
It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. When people are making a significant impact, they're engaged, motivated, and excited. They love what they do. When those people work for you, you get results. Results matter, and people drive results. But how do you recognize those people? At Talent Plus, we've assessed millions of people over decades using our rigorous science to predict successful on-the-job performance and cultural fit with an organization's mission, vision, and values. Our online assessments and person-to-person interviews not only identify talents, but uncover a roadmap for success from a person's first day on the job to the day they retire. When people celebrate their talents, use them daily, and think about how to lead with their strengths, they help their companies grow, produce, and innovate. Want to learn more about empowering your people to help you do great things? Visit us today at www.talentplus.com. Talent Plus, where science meets talent, where people drive results. Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. Welcome back. This is Larry Sternberg with Mentoring with Larry Sternberg, and I'm here with Lieutenant General Roger Lemke. And I want to hear your point of view about establishing mentoring programs in a formal way inside of companies or other types of organizations. What are the challenges? Well, again, to me, mentoring, the relationships that exist in mentoring are different than the other relationship that are involved with developing uh, subordinates or helping leaders. Again, typically a training environment where you've got people that are listening and somebody telling, if you will. Uh, mentoring is more of an interactive thing. On one hand, the mentor needs to understand that uh, how to apply and how to provide information in ways for the mentee, and the mentee uh, needs to be either formally or at least informally receptive uh, to the mentoring uh, to the mentoring approach. So I think within an organization, I see two kind of two levels here. The top level is encouraging uh, and 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 providing the materials to have people know what a mentoring program is. Uh, so here you're not forcing them to do anything, but you're providing them with the, uh, the principles of, of mentoring and being mentored, if you will. Uh, the value of another term often used is mentor-protege and, and providing that material so that those that are, that are in the mentor, have mentor potential, can understand the, the, the great possibilities that exist for helping them better their, their, their people in their organization, and on the mentee side, provide them with the opportunity to see that, hey, if I am in the right situation here, I can learn an awful lot, and it will improve the organization and improve me. So that's, you do that at a general level. I think where organizations go wrong in mentoring is that then they take it to the next level of detail and say, okay, Joe or Sally, you are going to mentor Fred or Sue, and you two are going to mentor and be mentored. 
And I don't see the mentoring process of being uh, successful generally if it's really forced on individuals. I, because, again, uh, the relationship there is, is key. Mentoring isn't directing somebody to do something. It's, it's not getting after them if they don't do something right. It's, it's, it's sharing experiences and providing them tips and maybe suggestions. And then it's up to the mentee to grab those and do something with them. And, you know, not everybody, not just any two people can develop that relationship. So you, I think within the organization, you have to set the, the educational aspect out about mentoring. But then, and you can maybe nurture or encourage, but then you've got to kind of let it go and see how it goes. Some are going to do it very, very well. Others are not going to subscribe to it at all, and that's, that's just the way it could be. But I don't think, but you don't, uh, the idea that, well, we're going we're gonna to have 10 mentors this, you know, this quarter, no matter what, is a goal. I don't know that that kind of approach works for mentoring. What makes a good mentor? You've got to be interested in people, uh, and you've got to have enough self-confidence in yourself that you feel comfortable uh, imparting uh, ideas, thoughts, and so forth on uh, uh, to others with the idea that they're going to use it to improve. You, you do have, you know, some out there that are that are not that confident, that are not necessarily willing or almost afraid of helping those below them because they become threats. So, to me, a, a good high self confidence level is important. A real caring attitude towards those that work for you or around you is is also. Uh, important, always being willing to to help. I think those are the those are probably the best qualities of a good of a good mentor. Thank you very much. I'd like to expand the conversation. Do you see mentoring as an element of leadership? Very definitely. I think as I look back on leaders, senior leaders that I've known, and this, by the way, is is uh, both. Army and Air Force, and, and also the civilian sector, because I had a civilian career, to me, the ones that have stood out and, and in many ways been the most successful are those that had the self-confidence and the interest in helping others that made them good mentors in addition to being good leaders. What, for you, are the principles that good leaders subscribe to? Well, I've always, uh, myself, uh, have a, a set of principles. There's eight of them. Uh, I didn't create them. They, they came from a, a book from a, a retired uh, Air Force uh, general that uh, many years ago. And there's a couple of them that I think are particularly applicable to our discussion uh, today. Uh, one of them is, from a leadership perspective, is declaring your ex- what I call what they call declaring your expectations. In other words, making sure that everybody in the organization knows what the organization as a whole, where it's going, and what our goals are. And you think, oh, that's easy. You know, we'll call everybody together, and then we'll have a meeting, and then we'll tell them, and then, you know, we'll check that one off. But what I found is that it's, it takes continual uh, communication and, and reinforcement and coming back to this goal and, and repeating it again and again and, and, and again 
so that, uh, because again, people get caught up in their daily life and what they're doing that day, and at some point, they often don't sit back and say, okay, now am I contributing towards the, towards the expectations that have been set out? So I think le- sometimes leaders think that, well, we'll tell everybody one time, check it off and move on, when really you've got you've to stay on task and stay on message with what your expectations are for the, uh, for the organization. Another one that uh, is fascinating to me, another principle is expect positive results. So what that means is that when you look at your employees, those that are working for you or around you, and uh, you, instead of looking at it from a perspective of saying, now, okay, now how are they going to, what am I going to have to do to recover from this? What are they going to do to mess this up? What do I need to do to kind of put them back on track? Giving them something and then ex- expecting them to do the right thing and do it, do it the right way. Uh, the Can you give me an I, example? Yeah, well, <laughs> the one I have is uh, <laughs> is uh, and, I, and I tease my uh, my my daughter in law, uh, and we all do it. You know, we you you've got the young child sitting in a high chair, and you've given them a bowl of cereal. They're maybe what eighteen months to two years old, and course, as they will, they start to mess with it a little bit. And so what's typically the first thing that comes out of the parent's mouth is, you're going to spill it. You're going to spill it. You're going to make a mess. And so right away we go negative. You know, we're expecting them to fail. And that's communicated to them. And what do they do? Sure enough, they start bouncing around, throwing a spool around, and sure enough, they spill it. As opposed to encouraging them to do it right. And then expecting that, yeah, they'll end up doing it right. So instead of anticipating failure, then why not just expect it to be done right the first time? Uh, in the work life, you know, there's many, many uh, examples of, of that. And a piece of that, you know, an element of that is empowerment. You know, you, you give them the task, and then you've got to step back and let them have at it. And again, you've got to step back with the idea that they're going to, they're, they're going to be fine. They're going to get it done right. So I, I think, so I see so often as I look around both military and civilian environments, instead of positive environments where the people are just expected to do the right thing, there's this caution, fear that they're going to mess up or something like that. And, and people that work for you can, can see that when you, when you don't have confidence in them. There's research that shows that the expectation of a person in authority, a teacher or a leader, has a material impact on how people perform. Uh, Yeah, no doubt about that. (laughs) No doubt about that. What's the next leadership principle? Well, the another one that's kind of interesting in a in a in a different twisty sort of way is they've got uh, he's got one called get out in front. Now, you look at that from kind of two perspectives. When things are going really well, sales are up, uh, profits are good, uh, you're meeting your military objectives, you've taken the hill, you've flown a great mission, you know, as a leader, it's great to get in front then and, uh, you know, and bask in the glory along with those that really probably did all the work. But when uh, the getting out in front that I'm talking about here is when things aren't good. And that's when the leader, more than any other time, needs to stand up and be visible and be there and get the sleeves rolled up and be part of the 
developing solution, if you will. And, you know, we, we can see many examples out there of when just when you think somebody should be out there standing up, speaking up, and then they don't show up uh, for whatever reason. So getting out in front is not just the good times, but more importantly, it's during the tough times when the leader needs to be get out in front. Very interesting, very and, and very true. Let's go ahead for our listeners and complete these eight principles of leadership as long as we've started. Well, uh, the very first principle is uh, maintain absolute integrity. And, and that one is, is maybe the toughest one and maybe the one that gets leaders in trouble more than, more than anything else. And it's, it can probably do more harm to the organization uh, than many believe. And most of the time when you, when you violate levels of integrity, it's not that you're called on it, but it's noticed. So the examples that I've used in talking about abs- de- uh, maintaining absolute integrity is, for example, you do expense reports if you travel. Well, if you're the leader of the organization and you do an expense report and you're fudging this or fudging that or putting in a couple extra things in there that maybe you shouldn't or whatever, I'll guarantee you the word gets around. So that next time that you stand up and you try to promote integrity within the organization, people will remember uh, those little things, if you will. It's not the big things. It's the little things that develop your, uh, your reputation with regard to integrity. So it's important that, uh, as the leader, that you are above reproach um, all of the time. And, again, it's not the big things that matter here. It's really the, 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 the little things, uh, showing up on time, uh, uh, being available, uh, things like that, that, that really, uh, you know, me, if you say you're going to write a letter for somebody, you do it. Things like that, that really, uh, if you will, uh, add to your integrity uh, pool. Another one uh, there is, is know your stuff. And again, this one's a little unusual because often in the military, what that means is that for the sergeant or for the captain or for the major, that means they, re- they see that as meaning, well, I know more than all the privates and the corporals and the sergeants that are, that are under me. And, and that's not what that uh, principle means. What it really means is that you know your stuff as the leader. Uh, as the leader, you're not expected to be able to run the numbers on the balance sheet or crunch the numbers to get you the income statement or to be the best shot in your company or in your squad, you've got people there that have been trained to be the best in those particular areas. Knowing your stuff means that you're supposed to do the stuff that a leader is supposed to do for your group, whatever that, you know, whatever that might be. So it's not knowing the details of everything that's going on. It's knowing the stuff that you need to know as a leader. That's what, that's what that one's um, all, all, um, all about. Another one... Um, is called showing uncommon commitment. And that's simply, that one is relatively simple in that if you're going to expect your people to be all in towards a goal or objective, then you have to be all in and a little bit more. So when it comes to, you know, if you, uh, the work time, I'm not saying you have to torture yourself, but uh, if they're there working, you need to be there working too. 
if there's a little extra being uh, needed to get something done, then you need to be ready to put that, that time and effort into it. I've seen leaders out there in various areas that felt that really what they could do is kind of sit back and relax and everything else is kind of going along and then eventually start taking advantage of that with you know with time off here or or not paying attention here and so forth so as a leader you've always got to continue to show uh uncommon uh uncommon uh commitment i lost count of the principles is that uh, <laughs> all of them that's let me get a couple more here larry uh putting duty uh, before self again, that one is fairly uh, 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 straightforward. But but the the key thing here is that if you're going to uh, have expectations of the people in an organization towards an objective, towards a goal, towards a vision, uh, then you've got to put the effort in yourself, which means that uh, of of anybody in that organization. You're the one that needs to make uh, those personal sacrifices to make sure things get done. On one hand, obviously, the best organizations are ones that take care of their people, so make sure that they have a balance of of family and work and and recreation and so forth. You as a leader, that's one where if there's a sacrifice from time to time that has to be made, you you need to be ready to make that sacrifice. And then that leads to the, another one, which is taking care of your people. And, again, this is another one that I see is often very highly violated. I think as the leader, you have a responsibility to try to make sure that that balance of family, job, and then recreation or other things is, is maintained for those that work, work for you. And if you're not careful, if you keep... Uh, the organization keeps pushing here, pushing there. People themselves may not realize that they're getting out of kilter, and it's part of a leader's responsibility to uh, to, to bring them back. So you've got to make sure that you're paying attention uh, to your people to make sure that they are maintaining uh, that kind of lifestyle balance. And again, it goes back to this skipping to work thing uh, that Kimberly uh, brings up. Uh, I think if you have employees again that are that maintain that balance, they're happier employers and they're more productive employees. I think that's most of the eight. Well, thank you very much. You said that there was one particular individual who was a very important mentor in your life. What was that person's name? His name was Colonel George B. Hennigan. And uh, he was uh, one of the directors. Uh, there was a period in my early Air Force career where I worked in a program office where and the, we were actually developing at that time the B-1 bomber. This was the early version that uh, Carter, President Carter, canceled, and it was restored by President Reagan later. I worked on the original program there for, for a couple of years. And uh, Colonel Hennigan at the time was in charge of our logistics directorate. There were maybe about, oh, about 15 or so of us, all officers, that worked for him in various ways to develop the logistical requirements for the B-1, all the support equipment, the maintenance training, and, and all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, and Colonel Hennigan had a responsibility where, about every quarter, every three months, he would go around and brief the Air Force generals that were 
eagerly anticipating the B-1 coming. Those that were involved in, in flying it, those were involved in, in the mission piece, those were in, in maintaining it, those responsible for the funding and all that. So he would, uh, he would put together these briefings. Now, back in the 70s, this was well a long time before PowerPoint. In fact, back in those days, what happened was that we had a uh, graphics section, and, and civilians in the graphics section would put together these charts like we do today at PowerPoint. They look like PowerPoint, but they were put together by hand. So if you had to change some words, they had to peel off letters and then put new letters down. And so General Lemke? Yeah. It's, it's time for us to take a brief break. I apologize for interrupting you, but when we come back, we're going to learn more about Colonel Hennigan, and I have a couple of other questions I'm curious about as well. Good. So we're going to take a brief break here, and when we come back, we're going to learn more about mentoring from Colonel Hennigan and General Lemke. on Facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world and that includes you visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment when people are making a significant impact they're engaged motivated and excited they love what they do when those people work for you you get results results matter and people drive results but how do you recognize those people at talent plus we've assessed millions of people over decades using our rigorous science to predict successful on-the-job performance and cultural fit with an organization's mission vision and values our online assessments and person-to-person interviews not only identify talents but uncover a roadmap for success from a person's first day on the job to the day they retire when people celebrate their talents use them daily and think about how to lead with their strengths they help their companies grow produce and innovate want to learn more about empowering your people to help you do great things visit us today at www.talentplus.com talent plus where science meets talent where people drive results find out what makes the most successful people tick keep listening to the voice america empowerment channel VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Welcome back. This is Larry Sternberg on the Voice America Empowerment Channel talking about mentoring with General Roger Lemke. He is going to tell us more about an important mentoring relationship he's had. You bet, Larry. And again, that was uh, Colonel George B. Hennigan. And again, he was the director of logistics for, a, for the B-1 a development program back in the 70s. And he had a responsibility to go out and brief senior leaders uh, throughout the Air Force about every quarter. And he put a lot of time and effort in putting together these, these slides, if you will, that were all done by, by hand. So it took a lot of time and effort to put these together. And he had a special way of of trying to arrange the material and organize it and so forth. Well, he, uh, again, I was a part of maybe somewhere between 15 or so officers that were under him in the, uh, in the uh, program office there, and he started asking me to help him with these, these slides. He would, uh, I would help first just conceptually help him organize a particular side, the wording that went on it, 
and stuff. And then I, he would actually send me down to work with the graphic people to make sure the slides look good and how they should look. And then he even took me, uh, took me with him. Uh, on some of the briefings where he stood up in front and briefed these generals. And, of course, they would fire questions back and forth during the, the briefing and, and all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, he never came to me and said, hey, Lemke, come here. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to mentor you on how to do this. He just did it. And we kind of developed a, a professional relationship in, in that regard and how, these, how best to communicate a point how to take when you've got bad news and try to make it as good as you can when you're presenting it, how to organize it so you can kind of control the flow of the presentation and, and all that stuff. And again, he, didn't, he, he never sat down and just said, okay, uh, Lemke, I'm, you know, I'm mentoring you here. This is how you need to do this. I just kind of watched him do it. I did my thing. He, uh, sometimes I had suggestions that he liked. Sometimes he said, no, nah, you know, what I'm suggesting here is, is nuts. So we just kind of worked together, and this happened for, oh, maybe about a half a year, a couple, uh, maybe more, maybe six months to a year that we did all this. Well, I didn't understand it at the time. I just did it. Nobody else was in the office was participating that way, and then he, he left, he retired and moved on, and, then, and I did too. And years later, as I started myself being put in situations where I was called upon to get in front of senior leaders and brief and present information, I began to realize, well, he taught me all that stuff through his mentoring. That's where I learned how to do this. And actually, I'll be honest with you, Larry, I got to be really quite good at it. And, and I think that actually helped me in my later career because I could get in front of a group, especially a senior group, and communicate a point of view, communicate a message, and, and, and handle it and present it in a way that was understandable. And so as I look back, again, this wasn't anything formal that was set up between him and me. For whatever reason, he decided to bring me into his circle there, personal circle, and then by doing that, I learned how to prepare uh, material for presentation and how to deal with the kind of high-level meetings that, uh, you know, that, that, that happen out there in the military and in the civilian world. So never forgotten him, never forgotten that. As you both moved in different directions in your life, did you ever stay in touch with him, get back with him? Not really. Uh, and, and as I think about that, because I know some of the questions, I know when, when uh, people look at mentoring, they often think of the mentor-protege, where a couple of people stay in touch and one seems to kind of pull the other one along their entire career. But in my case, I moved around so much that you tended to be at a spot, you had your people, and you went so many different directions that um, you, know, you, you really just kind of lost touch. So I, I, I really have not maintained a particular relationship with him uh, after he after he left. He went on to civilian life, and then I continued on in the military. That's great. Is there anything in particular, a quotation or a specific piece of wisdom that you remember that he passed on to you that you can still recall? Well, uh, <laughs> he had... <laughs> He had a, he had some the things he would he would talk about like uh, he would talk about not shooting yourself in the foot, uh, for example, where uh, you know don't get up and and uh, and say something that is just totally adverse that's going to move you in a, and and get you, and get you or get the presentation in, in into trouble. So you know move things along so that they're in a in a positive way. And he he had a lot of little things like that, like like shooting yourself in the foot. 
uh, and so forth that that he would uh, that he would use to kind of uh, relate uh, how these presentations need to be uh, be put together. I know that you have taught mentoring for quite a number of years. How many people would you say Ooh. you've taught the principles of mentoring to? Well, when I was adjutant general in charge of the Nebraska National Guard, I was that for about for seven years. I conducted a, a two-day leadership course that I personally taught for those two days. I brought in uh, pretty much all my colonels, lieutenant colonels, some majors on the officer side, and then the senior sergeants, the master sergeants and above. Boy, if I were to throw a number out there, you know, we're, we're probably talking somewhere around between 100 and 200 uh, uh, military individuals that went through that, uh, my, my course uh, during my time as, as adjutant uh, general. In fact, I, I have to say one of the proudest personal things for me, Larry, is I have some of them, and most, many of them now are approaching retirement themselves, that come up and can specifically remember uh, when they went through uh, my course and then some of the things from it. You know, and that's been 10 or more years ago when it happened. That must be a very rewarding feeling to have somebody say something like that. Very much so. I mean, to say that you actually, I mean, it's one thing, you know, it's like you give somebody something physical, a pin or a flower, but boy, you, you give somebody something that sticks in their mind. How can you top that? I don't know. What were the things that you did teach about being a, a better mentor or a good mentor? Well, the thing that I tried to emphasize was, again, you know, the military is very structured, and, and the leader-follower relationship is, that you learn is, is very structured. You know, I'm in charge. I tell you to go do this, and you go do it, and then we'll go on to the next thing. And what is often lacking is working with the younger uh, troops, the young captains and lieutenants, to help, de- help them develop their skills so that someday they're going to be doing what the leader is doing right now. So my, the first thing I, I tried to do is kind of work with them to break this mold of, I'm in charge, you do what I tell you, and then that's my role as a leader. To more of, let's, you need to care about these individuals, and you need to work with them, and then in doing so, it's not directive in nature. It's, it's trying to develop a professional relationship with those that are willing to, to be a part of it, and then doing things to help them grow. So that was a big part of, um, of what I did. When you, take, when you look at Army, uh, look at the Army, uh, they, they do talk about mentoring, you know, in a more of a formal sense. Uh, the Air Force is not quite uh, as, as formal, but nevertheless, it's kind of a, they kind of look at it from an organizational perspective, not really more of a professional, personal relationship. There are things, as we've already said, that to me aren't mentorship, uh, you know, getting after somebody. That's not counseling somebody, uh, so forth. That's not mentoring. That's, that's part of the, your professional requirement to, to do, um, and, and so forth. So I've always emphasized that, again, the mentoring is, is, is the one-on-one relationship, it's, and you, you tend to work with those that seem to be interested in developing their personal and career talents. So, you know, some have those relationships, some, some don't. And then a little bit of that is, goes towards helping them sometimes with their career track. 
not every time, not with everybody, but in some cases, if you can slot, move somebody into something that you think would fit them and help them expand their knowledge and their capability, then you, you try to help them with that. One of the things that interests me in the very big picture is that a military institution like the Army or the Air Force or the Navy, any of them, unlike civilian companies who often recruit leaders from the outside, it seems to me that the military is one of the few and maybe the only kind of institutions and organizations that literally cannot recruit people into senior leadership from the outside. So the military has no choice but to try to be world-class at identifying people with leadership potential and then making sure that they're helped to grow into that potential. I'd like you to just comment on that observation. Yeah, no, you're absolutely true. Uh, that's absolutely true, Larry, and it's got its, its positive aspects to it and compared to civilian organizations, but it also has its, its negative aspects uh, to it. The positive aspects of that is, again, when you recruit or you have a new second lieutenant pin on their, their bars, then someday they might have the potential to be chief of staff, be it the Army or the Air Force. And so you start in the service from day one developing them towards that possibility. So that's, and so you have leadership, uh, leadership development in the military is an absolute must because, again, that lieutenant that grows, uh, he and a few others are going to be what you're going to pick from for senior leadership somewhere down the road. So that's a good thing. When I, and I, when I look at so many civilian organizations, of course, the civilian environment is different, but I, I often don't, I don't see that same sort of development happening. And so whenever a leader leaves, then there's much more disruption in the company or the organization in terms of bringing somebody else in because they really haven't set themselves up a pool of those that are, that are ready to, to step up. To me, if you want to, the best organizations do that, and if you're going to buy stock in a company, take a look at their leadership development. That's key. Now, the downside um, of it is, you know, it's up and out. So if that second lieutenant, as they grow, really isn't measuring up, then they can't just expect to settle down into a staff job for another 30 years and be in the military. Uh, they will probably be gone in 10 or 15 years uh, from the military. So on one hand, you're developing uh, your pool for future leaders, but on the other hand, as you're going up, uh, those that don't measure up are being, if you will, ejected from the organization. Whereas in the civilian, uh, if once somebody finds their level of, call it competency or comfort or whatever you want to call it, very often they can stay and do that. And so you've got somebody that's very good at what they do uh, doing that for, for a long time, whereas in the military, You've got some skills and stuff that, unfortunately, you lose because they don't measure up uh, in the leadership development area. Thank you very much. I want to conclude today's session by thanking you once again for your many years of public service. We, in the, in the civilian part of our country, are extremely fortunate to have talented committed and dedicated leaders such as yourself helping to keep us safe. General, this has been a real learning experience for me and I'm sure for our listeners. So thank you very much 
for being Thank my you, Larry. It's been show. a real pleasure for me also. Thank you for joining us this week for Mentoring with Larry Sternberg. Please join Larry again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific, for another edition of the program on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a great week.